Section 20 of Jail for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Janet O'Reilly of Utah. www.oreilly-fire.com Jail for Freedom by Dora Stevens. Part 3. Chapter 25. A Farewell to President Wilson. The Republican Congress elected in November 1918 would not sit until December 1919. Such is our unfortunate system unless called together by the President in a special session. We had polled the new Congress by personal interviews and by post, and found a safe two-thirds majority for the amendment in the House. In the new Senate, we still lacked a fateful one vote. Our task was, therefore, to induce the President to call a special session of Congress at the earliest possible moment and to see that he did not relax his efforts toward the last vote. He won't do it. The President will never let the Republican Congress come together until the regular time, especially with himself in Europe. The usual points of objection were raised but we persisted. We felt that the president could win this last vote, and the fear that a Republican Congress might, if he did not, was an accelerating factor. One feature of the campaign to force a special session was a demonstration in New York on the eve of President Wilson's return to Europe at the time he addressed a mass meeting in the Metropolitan Opera House on his proposed League of Nations. The plan of demonstration was to hold outside of the Opera House banners addressed to President Wilson and to consign his speech to the flames of a torch at a public meeting nearby. It was a clear, starry night in March when the picket line of 26 women proceeded with tricolored banners from New York headquarters in 41st Street to the Opera House. As we neared the corner of the street opposite the Opera House, and before we could cross the street, a veritable battalion of policemen in close formation rushed us with unbelievable ferocity. Not a word was spoken by a single officer of the 200 policemen in the attack to indicate the nature of our offense. Clubs were raised and lowered and the women beaten back with such cruelty as none of us had ever witnessed before the women clung to their heavy banner poles trying to keep the banners above the maelstrom but the police seized them tore the pennants broke the poles some of them over our backs trampled them underfoot pounded us dragged us and in every way behaved like frantic beasts it would have been so simple quietly to detain our little handful until after the president's speech if that seemed necessary but to launch this violent attack under the circumstances was madness not a pedestrian had paid any except friendly attention to the slender file of women but the moment this happened an enormous crowd gathered made up mostly of soldiers and sailors many of whom had just returned from abroad and were temporarily thronging the streets of new york they joined forces with the police in the attack miss margaretta schuler a beautiful, fragile young girl was holding fast a silken American flag which she had carried at the head of the procession when a uniformed soldier jumped upon her, twisted her arms until she cried in pain, cursed, struggled until he had torn her flag from its pole, and then broke the pole across her head, exulting in his triumph over his frailer victim. When I appealed to the policeman, who was at the moment occupied solely with pounding me on the back, to intercept the soldier in his cruel attack, his only reply was, Oh, he's helping me. He thereupon resumed his beating of me and i cried shame shame aren't you ashamed to beat american women in this brutal way i offered no other resistance if we are breaking any law a 
arrest us. Don't beat us in this cowardly fashion. We'll rush you like bulls, was his vulgar answer. We've only just begun. Another young woman, an aviatrice, was seized by the coat collar and thrown to the pavement for trying to keep hold of her banner. Her fur cap was the only thing that saved her skull from serious injury. As it was, she was trampled underfoot and her face severely cut before we could rescue her with the assistance of a sympathetic member of the crowd. The sympathetic person was promptly attacked by the policeman for helping his victim to her feet. There were many shouts of disapproval of the police conduct and many cheers for the women from the dense crowd. By this time, the crowd had massed itself so thickly that we could hardly move an inch. It was perfectly apparent that we could neither make our way to the opera house nor could we extricate ourselves. But the terrors continued. Women were knocked down and trampled underfoot, some of them almost unconscious, others bleeding from the hands and face, arms were bruised and twisted, pocketbooks were snatched, and wristwatches stolen. When it looked as if the suffocating melee would result in death or permanent injury to some of us, I was at last dragged by a policeman to the edge of the crowd. Although I offered him not the slightest resistance, I was crushed continuously in the arm by the officer who walked me to the police station and kept muttering, you're a bunch of cannibals, Bolsheviks. Upon arriving at the police station, I was happily relieved to find some of my comrades already there. We were all impartially cursed at, told to stay stand up, told to sit down, forbidden to speak to one another, forbidden even to smile at one another. One by one we were called to the desk to give our name, age, and various other pieces of information. We stood perfectly silent before the station lieutenant as he coaxingly said, You'd better tell. You'd better give us your name. Better tell us where you live at. It will make things much easier for you. But we continued our silence. Disorderly conduct, interfering with the police, assaulting the police. Shades of heaven, assaulting the police where the charges entered against us. We were all locked in separate cells and told that we would be taken to the woman's night court for immediate trial. While pondering on what was happening to our comrades and wondering if they too would be arrested or if they would just be beaten up by the police and mob, a large fat jail matron came up and began to deliver a speech which ran something like this now sure and you ladies must know that this is going a bit too far now i'm for suffrage all right and i believe women ought to vote but why do you keep bothering the president don't you know he has got enough to think about with the league of nations the peace conference and fixin up the whole world on his mind in about half an hour we were taken from our cells and brought before the lieutenant who now announced well you ladies may go now i have just received a telephone order to release you we accepted the news and jubilantly left the station house returning at once to our comrades there the battle was still going on and as we joined them we were again dragged and cuffed about the streets by the police and their aides but there were no more arrests elsie hill succeeded in speaking from a balcony above the heads of the crowd did you men turn back when you saw the germans coming what would you have thought of anyone who did did you expect us to turn back we never turn back either and we won't until democracy is won who rolled bandages for you when you were suffering abroad who bound your wounds in your fight for democracy who spent long hours of the night and the day knitting you warm garments there are women here tonight attempting to hold banners to remind the president that democracy is not one at home who have given their sons and husbands for your fight abroad what would they say if they could see you their comrades in the fight over there attacking their mothers their sisters their wives over here aren't you ashamed that you have not enough sporting blood to allow us to make our fight in our own way aren't you ashamed that you 
you accepted the help of women in your fight and now tonight brutally attack them? And they did listen until the police, in formation, looking now like wooden toys, advanced from both sides of the street and succeeded in entirely cutting off the crowd from Miss Hill. The meeting thus broken up, we abandoned a further attempt that night. As our little bannerless procession filed slowly back to headquarters, hoodlums followed us. The police, of course, gave us no protection, and just as we were entering the door of our own building, a rowdy struck me on the side of the head with a heavy banner pole. The blow knocked me senseless against the stone building. My hat was snatched from my head and burned in the street. We entered the building to find that soldiers and sailors had been periodically rushing it in our absence, dragging out bundles of our banners, amounting to many hundreds of dollars, and burning them in the street without any protest from the police. One does not undergo such an experience without arriving at some inescapable truth, a discussion of which would interest me deeply, but which would be irrelevant in this narrative. Two hundred maddened women try to see the president. Two hundred women attack the police, and similar false headlines appeared the next morning in the New York papers. It hurt to have the world think that we had attacked the police. That was a slight matter, however, for that morning at breakfast aboard the George Washington, the president also read the New York papers. He saw that we were not submitting in silence to his inaction. It seems reasonable to assume that on sailing down the harbor that morning past the Statue of Liberty, the president had some trouble to banish from his mind the report that 200 maddened women had tried to make the opera house last night. Chapter 26. President Wilson wins the 64th vote in Paris. The prison special, which was nearing the end of its dramatic tour, was arousing the people to call for a special session of Congress as the president sailed away. Although a Republican Congress had been elected, President Wilson, as the head of the administration, was still responsible for initiating and guiding legislation. We had to see to it that with his Congress out of power, he did not relax his efforts on behalf of the amendment. There was this situation which we were able to use to our advantage. Two new Democratic senators, Senator Harrison of Mississippi and Senator Harris of Georgia, had been elected to sit in the incoming Congress through the President's influence. He therefore had very specific power over these two men, who were neither committed against suffrage by previous votes, nor were they yet won to our amendment. We immediately set ourselves to the task of getting the president to win one of these men. From the election of these two men in the autumn to early spring, constant pressure was put upon the president to this end. When we could see no activity on the part of the president to secure the support of one of them, we again threatened publicly to resume dramatic protests against him. We kept the idea abroad that he was still responsible and that we would continue to hold him so until the amendment was passed. Such a situation gave friends of the administration considerable alarm. They realized that the slightest attack on the president at that moment would jeopardize his many other endeavors. And so these friends of the president undertook to acquaint him with the facts. Senator Harris was happily in Europe at the time. A most anxious cable, signed by politicians in his own party, was sent to the president in Paris explaining the serious situation and urging him to do his utmost to secure the vote of the senator at once. Senator Harris was in Italy when he received an unexpected telegram asking him to come to Paris. He journeyed with all speed to the president, perhaps even thinking that he was about to be dispatched to some foreign post to learn that the conference was for the purpose 
of securing his vote on the national suffrage amendment. Senator Harris there and then gave his vote, the 64th vote. On that day, the passage by Congress of the original Susan B. Anthony amendment was assured. Instantly, a cable was received at the White House carrying news to the suffragists of the final capture of the elusive last vote. Following immediately on the heels of this cable came another cable calling the new Congress into the special session May 19th. In the light of the President's gradual yielding and final surrender to our demand, it will not be out of place to summarize briefly just what happened. President Wilson began his career as President of the United States on anti-suffragist. He was opposed to suffrage for women both by principle and political expediency. Sometimes I think he regarded suffragists as a kind of sect. Good women, no doubt, but tiresome and troublesome. Whether he has yet come to see the suffrage battle as part of the great movement embracing the world is still a question. It is not an important question, for in any case it was not inward convictions, but political necessity that made him act. Believing then that suffragists were a sect, he said many things to them at first with no particular care as to the bearing of these things upon political theory or events. He offered successively consideration, an open mind, a closed mind, an age-long conviction deeply matured, party limitations, party conceit of action, and what not. He saw in suffrage the tide rising to meet the moon, but waited and advised us to wait. But we did not want to wait, and we proceeded to try to make it impossible for him to wait either. We determined to make action upon this issue politically expedient for him. When the president began to perceive the potential political power of women voters, he first declared as a private citizen that suffrage was all right for the women of home state, New Jersey, but that it was altogether wrong to ask him as president to assist in bringing it about for all the women of the nation. He also interested himself in writing the suffrage plank in the Democratic Party's national platform, specifically relegating action on suffrage to the state then he calmly announced that he could not act nationally even if i wanted to because the platform had spoken otherwise the controversy was lengthened the president's conspicuous ability for sitting still and doing nothing on a controversial issue until both sides have exhausted their ammunition was never better illustrated than in this matter he allowed the controversy to continue to the point of intellectual sterility he buttressed his delays with more evasions until finally the women intensified their demand for action they picketed his official gates but the president still recoiled from action so mightily did he recoil from it that he was willing to imprison women for demanding it it is not extraordinary to resent being called upon to act for it is only the exceptional person who springs to action even when action is admitted to be desirable and necessary and the president is not exceptional he is surprisingly ordinary while the women languished in prison he fell back upon words beautiful words two expressions of friendliness good wishes hopes and may i note in this case too he was acting like an ordinary human being not like the statesman he was reputed to be he had habituated himself to a belief in the power of words and every time he uttered them to us he seemed to refortify himself in his belief in their power it was the women not the president who were exceptional they refused to accept words they persisted in demanding acts step by step under terrific gunfire of the president's resistance crumbled and he yielded one by one every minor facility to the measure always withholding from us however the main objective not until he had exhausted all minor facilities and all possible evasions did he publicly declare that the amendment should pass the house and put it through when he had done that we rested from the attack momentarily in order to let him consummate with grace and not under fire the passage of the amendment in the senate he rested altogether we were therefore compelled to renew the attack he countered at first with more 
our words, but his reliance upon them was perceptibly shaken when we burned them in public bonfires. He then moved feebly but with a growing concern toward getting additional votes in the Senate, and when, as an inevitable result of his policy and ours, the political embarrassment became too acute, calling into question his honor and prestige, he covertly began to consult his colleagues. We pushed him the harder. He moved the fastest toward concrete endeavor. He actually undertook to win the final notes in the Senate. There he found, however, that quite an alarming situation had developed, a situation which he should have anticipated, but for which he was totally unprepared. Opposition in his own party had been growing more and more rigid and cynical. His own opposition to the amendment, his grant of immunity to those leaders in his party who had fought the measure, his isolating himself from those who might have helped, all this was coming to a fruition among his subordinates at a time when he could least afford to be beaten on anything. What would have been a fairly easy race to win if he had begun running at the pistol shot had now become most difficult. Perceiving that he had now not only to move himself but also to overcome the obstacle which he had allowed to develop, we increased the energy of our attack. And finally the president made a supreme assertion of his power and argued the last and the 64th vote in the Senate. He did this too late to get the advantage, if any advantage is to be gained, from granting a just thing at the point of a gun. For this last vote arrived only in time for a Republican Congress to use it. It seems to me that Woodrow Wilson was neither devil nor God in his manner of meeting the demand of the suffragists. There has persisted an astounding myth that he is an extraordinary man. Our experience proved the contrary. He behaved toward us like a very ordinary politician, unnecessarily cruel or weakly tolerant, according as you view the justice of our fight, but a policeman, not a statesman. He did not go out to meet with the tide which he himself perceived was rising to meet the moon. That would have been statesmanship. He let it all but engulf him before he acted, and even as a politician he failed, for his tactics resulted in the passage of the amendment by the Republican Congress. Chapter 27. Republican Congress Passes Amendment. The Republican Congress convened in special session May 19. Instantly, Republican leaders in control of the 66th Congress caucused and organized for a prompt passage of the amendment. May 21st, the Republican House of Representatives passed the measure by a vote of 304 to 89, the first thing of any importance done by the new House. This was 42 votes above the required two-thirds majority, whereas the vote in the House in January 19, under Democratic control, had given the measure only one vote more than was required. Immediately, the Democratic National Committee passed a resolution calling on the legislature of the various states to hold special legislative sessions where necessary to ratify the amendment as soon as it was through Congress in order to enable women to vote in the national elections of 1920. When the 64th vote was assured, two more Republican senators announced their support. Senator Keyes of New Hampshire and Senator Hale of Maine, and on June 4th, the measure passed the Senate by a vote of 66 to 30, two votes more than needed. These figures include all voting and paired. Of the 49 Republicans in the Senate, 40 voted for the amendment, 9 against. Of the 47 Democrats in the Senate, 26 voted for it and 21 against. And so the assertion that the light of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex introduced into Congress by the efforts of Susan B. Anthony in 1878 was finally submitted to the states for ratification. When a constitution 
constitutional amendment has passed Congress, it must be ratified by a majority vote of 36 state legislatures and thereupon proclaimed operative by the Secretary of State of the United States before it became the law of the land. On June 4, 1919, I do not need to explain that the amendment was not won from the Republican Congress between May 19th and June 4, 1919. This Republican Congress between May 19th and June 4th, the Republican Party had been gradually coming to appreciate this opportunity throughout our entire national agitation from 1913 to date and our attack upon the party in power which happened to be president wilson's party had been the most decisive factor in stimulating the opposition party to espouse our side it is perhaps fortunate for the republican party that it was their political opponents who inherited this lively question in 1913 however the political advantage is theirs for having primarily and ungrudgingly passed the amendment the moment they came into power. But it will not be surprising to say anyone who has read this book that I conclude by pointing out that the real triumph belongs to the women. Our objective was the national enfranchisement of women. A tiny step, you may say true, but so long as we know that this is but the first step in the long struggle of women for political, economic, and social emancipation, we need not be disturbed. If political institutions as we know them today in their discredited condition break down and another kind of organization, perhaps industrial, supplants them, women will battle for their place in the new system with as much determination as they have shown in the struggles just ended. That women have been aroused never again to be content with their subjection, there can be no doubt. That they will ultimately secure for themselves equal power and responsibility in whatever system of government is evolved is positive. How revolutionary will be the changes when women get this power and responsibility no one can adequately foretell. One thing is certain, they will not go back. They will never again be good and willing slaves. It has been a long, wearying struggle. Although drudgery has persisted throughout, there have been compensatory moments of great joy and beauty. The relief of that comes after a great achievement is sweet. There is no residue of bitterness. To be sure, women have often resented it deeply that so much human energy had to be expended for so simple a right. But whatever disillusionments they have experienced, they have kept their faith in women and the winning of political power by women will have enormously elevated their status. End of section 20. End of Jail for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Recording by Janet O'Reilly of Utah.